0: sharing is caring except when netflix says no yes this week on download this show are the days of you sharing your netflix password with others coming to an end also with the skyrocketing petrol prices are you maybe considering going electric with your next car well we'll try and navigate that choice for you and should we vote in elections online what works and what can go wrong all of that and much more coming up this is your guide to the week in media technology and culture my name is mark finnell and welcome to download this show Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guests this week, Cam Wilson, Associate Editor with Crikey. Welcome back. Hi. (laughs) Nice to hear your voice again. Amy Bainbridge, ABC Consumer Affairs Reporter. Welcome back to Download This Show. Thanks so much, Mark. Great to be here. The pleasure is entirely mine, but you know who's probably not experiencing pleasure right now? Facebook. Uh, right now, Facebook is being sued by the nation of Australia. Amy, am I getting that correct? Well,
1: the key consumer watchdog is probably, but I, I did see the report that you're referring to about Australia suing Facebook. and Like, why not? Let's have some hyperbole. The
0: BBC are running with a headline where Australia sues Facebook. Um which I I just think is a funny mental image. I'm going to stick to the pejorative that we as a nation are suing Facebook, but why, (laughs) Amy? Why are we suing them?
1: Oh, look, scams during the pandemic have just gotten worse and worse. We're seeing this explosion in scams operating online. You know, more of us are um, more socially isolated than ever. We're conducting business and social activities online. And I've spoken to so many victims over the past two years about, you know, money losses, but also how the scammer's Reach them, and the A is taking action against Facebook because it alleges Facebook hasn't been doing enough to get scammers off their platforms. So, what people will say is that they would have seen they either did a search or they did some sort of um, you know look around on on social media, and, and an ad pops up, say for a, an investment. And as you know, crypto is all the flavour at the moment. Scammers are capitalising on that demand that excitement around crypto and they're yeah, adapting their marketing and connecting with victims in that way. So what this case is about is the ACCC saying, look, Facebook, you need to take more responsibility for what's happening on your platform.
2: Uh, Cam, what has Facebook's sort of preliminary response been? Their response is always something along the lines of, we're, we're, we're on this, we're trying to do something about it, we monitor it. Um, which is a very like you know very like way of saying that they're quite proactive. It doesn't quite explain how these ads always seem to be all over this place because they really have been around for like a very very long time. And it's it's not like highly sophisticated either. It's just like you know in in the in the the picture of the 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 post that is advertised, or even in the text, it will have the the name or and the face of the person. And these are things that we know that Facebook uh, and under the company Meta, you know, because they're sometimes shown across Instagram, um, uh, Instagram as well. These are things that we know that they can pick up on, like you know, it used to be that Facebook would automatically tag your friends' photos uh, or your your friends' faces in your photos, and you know, obviously you can search by 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 name. So you know, the idea of, of having like you know keyword filters for prominent people doesn't seem like a, a hugely complex idea. But despite that, you know, they've still been able to, you know, scammers who are using this have still been able to use the the advertising platform to to reach vulnerable people. To to sometimes swindle hundreds of thousands of dollars out from them. And all the time, you know, Facebook is charging them to do this. So they are profiting off the fact that people are getting scammed on their platform.
0: So the ACCC have said that this action is a world first, that this hasn't been done anywhere else in the world. Is that true? Because that's quite interesting if that, if that is the case. And I'm sure there's probably a reason for that, Amy.
1: It is a world leader. And I must say, once I found out that this court case was going ahead, of course, I did this mad search around, you know, trying to find out if any other jurisdiction had actually taken action of a similar kind. And then, of course, Rod Sims on his final day as the ACCC chair said that this was actually a world first. So thanks, Rod, for clarifying that. Um, It's quite the mic drop, isn't it? You're like, and I'm out.
0: (laughs) You say, I'm out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that's that's it. Um, Yeah. So look, it's it's super interesting, but it must be said this comes hot on the heels of our mining billionaire friend, Andrew Twiggy Forrest, who has already filed action uh, in California, um, in court in the US, and also uh, in WA as well, along similar, although not the exact same lines. But his court action goes to the fact that um, there were ads using his image promoting fake, fake cryptocurrency investments. And he says that once he argued to Facebook that this was fake, it needs to be taken down. He couldn't get any action on that. And that is kind of similar to what the ACCC case is saying as well, is that they, they're referring to celebrity-endorsed uh, you know, fake ads, really, featuring you know, businessman Dick Smith, for one example. Our former New South Wales Premier Mike Baird is another example. And the ACCC alleges that they went to Facebook and said, hey, take these down, these are fake and they're scamming people and that no action was taken. So that's there's, I guess, two similarities in those two cases, but certainly by a regulator, this is a leading action.
0: Just to play devil's advocate here for a second, Cam, is there not an argument that perhaps the these very famous faces should be going after the actual advertisers themselves? And, and what's sort of stopping them
2: from doing that? I mean, my guess is what's stopping them from doing that is that the people who are advertising using these faces are kind of like, you know, the heads of Hydra. You know, they're, they're not very big. They pop up all over the place. And once you, once you ban, you know, one of these accounts, uh, you know, an, another one will kind of pop up somewhere else. So, you know, I had an article that came out on Tuesday that was talking about um, kind of a very similar thing, but specifically about um, accounts using Anthony Albanese's a recent weight loss as a way of promoting some really dodgy scam weight loss supplement um, and, and what I noticed is that all, all the pages that were kind of promoting this were just like you know random names like wealth or personal happiness you know just kind of like weird noun, nouns that had been signed up you know registered didn't have much actual engagement on it and then had been used to advertise this scammy product using Anthony Albanese's face and name and so you know if you banned them it's not like this the person who set that up has lost like you know something that's significant because they are paying Facebook to to get that reach. So they don't need to worry about you know building up followers. Once they get banned, all they have to do is figure out another way to get around whatever checks that Facebook has that to stop them getting uh, around bans, which which isn't really that much, uh, and just kind of do it again. So really, you know, f- for someone like uh, you know Twiggy or, or any of these other people who've been caught up in this, the idea of actually trying to track this down, I think you know, I I I, have a, a, I bet that it's probably cross jurisdictional. I wouldn't be surprised if these people aren't actually from Australia. And even if if you could find them, you know, like. I don't know exactly what you you would do because you know they might not have that much money. So really, what you're trying to get out of it by chasing up someone who is trying to scam probably isn't really actually going to stop it. You, you know these uh, these lawsuits and, and and proceedings are actually about saying Facebook, you're responsible. You are profiting off people using your platform this way. You need to have a, uh, a you know a better check on this. Amy, what's the ideal here,
0: right? So assuming the the case plays out. What, would, what are people actually arguing for that Facebook slash Meta should actually put in place?
1: Well, more responsibility for what it allows to advertise on the platforms. I think that's probably key to all this. And I will just go just back to what Cam said as well about trying to find the individuals. I mean, I've done a lot of work in this murky world of scams and typically they are based offshore and typically there may be one company that's a, sort of an umbrella um over several companies or maybe hundreds of companies. So once they've got your details, you might be contacted by different people all the time. Like it's such a murky world. Um, So I think like a lot of the time when the ACCC takes these cases, it's, it's about sending a message to the entire industry. So this case might just be about Facebook. Obviously Meta owns Facebook and Instagram, but you've got to look at the other platforms, say search engines as well, where a lot of victims have told me that they um, put in, you know, crypto investments into a search engine and ads come up and that's how they got scammed by pretty professional looking ads or other investment opportunities other than crypto. So I think it's, it's. I mean, the ACCC will want probably a pretty big fine out of this to really send a message and to get, um, you know, the company to change its, its processes um, in terms of what actually gets to go on the platform and in terms of fines we're talking you know breaches of Australian consumer law uh, misleading and deceptive conduct like penalties depending on how many you know breaches there have been but they can run into many millions of dollars so they'll be really looking for a strong signal um, out of this and you know they may not necessarily go to trial they might be able to sort of work together to come to some sort of good outcome, I guess. We've seen that happen with other corporations as well with their consumer issues. So it may not necessarily go all the way, but they're certainly firing a pretty strong shot at at Facebook to say, look, the way things are at the moment are are not good enough. And more broadly, Rod Sims told me in an interview only a couple of weeks ago that they have engaged a lot with banks and telecommunications providers about scams and what they're doing on it. But when it comes to uh, digital platforms, and I I say that, you know, as an umbrella term, they haven't been getting much traction when it comes to raising the issues and their concerns. And that was kind of, I guess, setting them on the course to, to court action when they feel like they've frustrated other avenues for trying to get some of these issues resolved.
2: The other thing that I think it might do is that we know that regulators around the world are copycats. And so, you know, when Rod Sims, you know, drops the mic and says, this is a world first, Facebook is is no doubt considering the fact that, well, you know, if these guys do it, then other other people around the world will be watching and want to do the same thing. So, you know, it can be the kind of flow on effects of a suit like this.
1: Yeah, that's right. And that also means that they might fight hard, (laughs) harder because they're like, we don't want to set a precedent or they could go the other way and go, Right, okay, this is how we're gonna fix the problem and we're gonna roll this up off you know, out across the markets. This is how we're changing how we do things. I think that's a really important point, Cam, because we've seen with other global issues like Volkswagen and things like that that big corporations can be facing multiple cases in different jurisdictions and it's time consuming, it's bad publicity and it's very, very expensive.
0: Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. And Cam Wilson, uh, associate editor with Crikey, joins us alongside Amy Bainbridge, ABC Consumer Affairs reporter. And right now, you will, (laughs) in most cases, have noticed the skyrocketing uh, petrol prices. But is it cheaper to run an electric vehicle? Uh, Amy, you've done a lot of work in this area beforehand, and we are seeing more Australians buying electric vehicles. But
1: does the economics stack up at the moment? Well, it depends who you talk to. It also depends on how much you drive, really, as to how quickly you might recoup the costs. Um, there's, Yeah, the other thing is, I mean, at the moment, there's not a whole lot of choice in the Australian market for electric cars. So what's out there are still quite expensive in terms of if you want to go and buy one tomorrow. I mean, the supply of them is a whole separate issue. But actually what you might pay is still pretty high and we don't have a super comprehensive scheme of of rebates or subsidies unlike other developed nations. So um, there's various figures around. I guess people who are the early adopters and the people that I speak to, you know, who've, who've bought these cars say, look, they are just so unbelievably cheap to run. But... Um, you've got to have the money in the first place to buy one. I guess the good news is that in the next couple of years, prices are going to come down. At the moment, um, they're just really... The technology of batteries is changing and that's probably what's keeping prices a little higher than what's affordable. But it's also around supply to the Australian market, EV... Manufacturers targeting other markets where there have been subsidies, and this is all tied up in Australia's fuel emissions standards as well, and the fact that you can still sell a real wide variety a really wide variety of vehicles here in the market compared with um, other nations where there might be um, a ceiling on how many polluting vehicles you can sell. So it's a pretty complicated scenario and I don't really have a a straight answer for you, but they're all the factors that play into it, Mark.
0: No, I think that's fair enough because I I was having this conversation with my wife the other day and we were like, you know what, the next car we buy, it should be electric. And then we sort of had like a 20 minute Google (laughs) and then went, this is still quite expensive for lots of people who were, you know, in a sort of median uh, income range. It seems like it's not quite there yet. But the, tell me, like in the work that you've done and the people that you've spoken to, do you think that's right or am I am I just looking for an excuse not to buy a your car?
1: I, I do think you're right. I mean, we're probably in a similar position to you, right? Petrol prices are going up. You start looking around at the options and then you think, oh, my gosh. Amy, what's the impact on the, um, on the energy grid? More people will
0: be driving electric vehicles. Um,
1: is that going to have an impact on the power grid? Well, that's what retailers and generators and networks think. They think that if everyone comes home from work and tries to plug in their cars and, and charge them up from, say, 5 till 8pm. That's going to be the most typical time. And at from 5 till 8pm, people are also going to be running air conditions, say, if it's the peak of summer. Um then yes, how will our system cope? Because we are still at very low rates of EVs, but that is very much expected to trend up in the next five to 10 years. So what ARENA, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, is doing is partnering with a you know a whole bunch of different organisations and they're running these trials to look at what's called smart charges and some of that is around how the retailer, for example, in one in one instance, might communicate. Look at the load in the network. Might communicate with the software um, in the car, and will direct that charging possibly to happen later at night, or if you're plugged in during the day and there's an abundance of solar, that charging will happen. You know when there's an abundance of solar in the grid, and then the next step for that. And I was at an energy conference last week, and sort of heard about this firsthand. The next step to that, and it's still quite new in Australia, is the two-way. So would you, in the future, if you had a full car, full battery, be able to discharge some of that to support the grid at low generation time when there's not a lot of sun or not a lot of wind and things like that. So that's kind of... A lot of what's what's laying in front of us. We've got a bit of a window at the moment, um, I guess, is what we're being told by those in the industry to look at these issues and do some some studies around it. And with the smart charging thing, one key point to it is they're just trying to find out, like if if you delay someone's charging till say midnight or some other time when energy cheaper and there's less pressure on the on the networks, then a consumer's happy with that. And they, in these trials, still get to override the signal from the the retailer or whoever is sending that signal. And they'll take that data and go, okay. so expecting people not to charge at 5pm, that's just not right. How are we going to adapt to make sure they can? And I I think all that leads back to, you know, what sort of trust currency people have in their retailers as well and, and, and being these sort of... Well, they start calling them prosumers, proactive consumers or whatever, like how, how much of a player are you going to be in the energy market yourself at home?
0: Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Amy Bainbridge, ABC Consumer Affairs reporter, and Cam Wilson, uh, Associate Editor with Crikey. And it looks like tens of thousands of voters, particularly in the state of New South Wales, will be forced to go back to the polls. And that's because uh, the Electoral Commission's online voting system, iVote, had a bit of a problem. Cam, what exactly happened for people that aren't
2: necessarily familiar with the story? There was a, a legal challenge over the results of the election that had happened. It was uh, local government elections in New South Wales and the New South Wales Electoral Commission won the bid to kind of overturn these results. And the reason that they were challenging these results is that they used this iVote system, which is a, a a digital way of being able to vote online. You can vote both kind of through a browser, but you can also ring up as well. And the idea is to make voting more accessible. Um, also, you know, general proponents of, peop- of online voting say that, you know, you can reduce kind of costs as well and, and that kind of digital transformation stuff. Um, the reason that it was overturned was because there was a... That, you know in the scheme of things qu- quite a few amount of votes but ultimately enough to have some effect on the election that were not recorded and and they were not recorded because the, the people who tried to, to vote they were uh, unf- like the system decided that they- it was unable to pr- pr- prove they were who they were so I think in total across I think it was like three of the, the areas in which they had the votes it was I think less than 150 votes the contests were quite tight and because of I guess the small amount of votes overall and also because of the way that the electoral system worked where different areas and and the votes in there affected other ones they essentially had to throw out yeah as you said you know five digits and and, uh, into the five digits worth of votes and have to run these uh, elections again and and that of course is a bit of a bummer not least because people have to go out and vote but also because you know running for election is a pretty arduous process it's a costly one and now people who have legitimately won in fact whose whose actual race was not even affected by this will have to go through all of this again
0: and it, particularly for people that don't come from major parties that don't have huge sort of investment, or not huge, just any kind of investment, that can be quite uh, an expensive undertaking. Cam, though, what was the original plan with iVote? What was it supposed
2: to to do? What was the problem it was trying to solve? One thing that iVote does is that it, it does actually make voting kind of more accessible. I mean, I actually, I had used it this during these elections because... I was actually uh, in in isolation because I'd been exposed to COVID. So, you know, that was a great time to be able to do that. It was too late to get a mail-in uh, ballot. So I was able to use the system to vote. Intuitively makes sense. You know, we use these paper ballots and sure, you know, it's 2022. Why can't we just bloody log on? Um, but, but, you know, for a long time, you know, the people who are really experts in this area... Um, you know, who are researchers, kind of have opposed it, you know, mostly for three reasons. One, you know, unlike paper ballots, it could be hacked. Any system that you create that's online can actually be, you know, uh, manipulated by outside forces, Who people who may want to uh, affect a election result. The local New South Wales elections are not exactly the, you know, US presidential elections, and I, I don't, you know, Russia's got bigger things on their hands at the moment, but there are reasons that people may want to affect these systems and that that can, you know, uh, obviously be an incentive for them to try and hack into them. The second thing is that if the coding is wrong in these systems, it means that votes may not be counted as they should have been because it might seem simple to you and me, you know, you're like, someone votes, you count it, any, you know, people can do it, surely a machine can do it, you know, instantaneously, which is, by the way, another benefit. But the problem is because it's not transparent, because it's this, you know, this uh, essentially an algorithm, uh, you know, it, it essentially spits out a result and it's very difficult sometimes to tell whether the actual result is right. And the third part of it is because it's online, unlike in a physical paper uh, election where you kind of go and hand it in, it's very actually hard to know if your vote has been counted. So for all these reasons, despite the obvious benefits about this, you know, like election processes which are expensive and time consuming, the the obvious advantages are taken online. Um, You know, people say that we shouldn't and and this recent rolling out of it kind of shows yet again that even at kind of low stakes, even just small errors can actually have a huge effect and end up being more expensive than running just the normal paper election that, uh, you know, that people are advocating
0: for. I think the thing that sticks with me is is how important trust is. You know, we've seen overseas how, you know, trust in electoral systems has been eroded. I'm thinking particularly about what happened in the US in the wake of Donald Trump's defeat. Like that that level of of, of trust that we need to have in our electoral process is really paramount, right, for all of the things that people disagree with around the country. If people don't have faith in that system, it starts to disintegrate you know, society in really like dangerous ways, and I think, as as awful and frustrating as I'm sure this is for you know not just the voters but the candidates in this like election camera I do kind of feel. And you tell me if you disagree that that making sure that the trust in the process is. Has kind of got to be like the have the last word here right?
2: Yeah absolutely I mean look we people I'm sure have heard no doubt us talk to death about ideas of misinformation, disinformation all that kind of stuff. The last thing you need is then also your uh, election voting system kind of going down as well. Um, you know th- there is a kind of still a idea for digital voting that you know many of the people sceptical about online voting promote and that's the idea of you still got to go in you've just got to use a kind of computer device that's in there and the idea is that reduces some of the risk because there's, uh, you know, fewer ways it can go wrong because if you think about it, you know, if if anyone logs on, they're in a kind of unique environment, you know, different phones, different internet, different all this kind of stuff versus having, you know, fewer kind of digital voting machines. And of course, by having it physically there, it's harder for outside people to try and manipulate in some way. So there is kind of a a compromise, but I I do think at the end of the day, like, you know, we, we know how tenuous sometimes the kind of faith in the electoral process is really the last thing that we need going wrong is like, you know, a server outage that makes people, uh, that has re- kind of, you know, really big consequences for, for faith in institutions. Lastly, here and Download the Show, very quickly, uh, your days of mooching off a family
0: member's Netflix account could soon be over. Amy, it uh, looks like Netflix are going to cut down on, are going to start penalising people rather for uh, password sharing.
1: Yeah, well, that's right. That's that whole concept that, uh, you know, you might be able to give your Netflix Password to someone and they can log in somewhere and watch something that they want to watch, not what you want to watch. You're not doing it together. And look, this is all about, um, I guess, growth on the Netflix platform. You know, they they had a pretty good period during the pandemic, but now um, there's just so many players in the streaming platform world. I mean, I've sort of been waiting for consolidation to happen, and it just still hasn't. But maybe this is the first signal that. That something is going to happen along those lines. So basically, yes, um, Netflix is going to go down this route. It's um, only rolling it out in South America, a couple of countries in South America, as far as I can see. But basically, it means that if you if you've got an account, then you have you can have a, a sub account, so someone else can have a a, a, a log into your account, but that's going to cost you a bit extra money. So and you know it, it's really about the I guess the economics of it all, and their their growth has been below what they expected in the most recent earnings report. So they're they're trying to do something about it. And they they say, look, it's about investing in new content. And to be fair, I mean, Netflix does do a lot of their own original series and don't we all love them, you know? So hopefully this means that they will continue to invest in, in some of those marquee shows that they put out.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, they benefited from, the, I guess, the, the cultural exposure for for a long time. It was a good way of getting more people to sample it. But I suppose in time, I guess it, to, to some extent, Cam, this was inevitable. They were always going to have to do this at some point.
2: Yeah, I mean, that, pr- probably. I, I'm sure that they were hoping that um, some of the competition would have bowed out by now. But it, it seems like, if anything, there's more and more uh, every... Month or two, I'm I'm scratching my head as I say this because I'm thinking about all the people I'm signing up for. Um, I I think (laughs) consumers are kind of becoming more savvy about this, and you know, more than just like sharing services. Which, if I did, I would never admit on radio. But if I hypothetically did, like you know, I think would make would make sense. The other thing that I think people are doing is just like they've now realized that there's actually no benefit to signing up for a service and staying signed up. When you're not actually watching it, it's not like you like accrue like a loyalty. So people will just like, you know, get Netflix for a month and then they'll watch everything they want to watch and then they'll stop. One of the premises of, of like a lot of Silicon Valley companies is this idea that they will at first come out with this incredible product that's very, very easy and, and cheap to use. They will kill off all the competition and then over time they'll be able to increase their margin as they have less competition and as as they're able to extract more from customers. But you know, kind of as they've seen, there's no real lock-in value to having Netflix over anything else. In fact, if anything, the more things that there are there, there's, there's more kind of um, incentives for me to say, well, I'm going to get rid of Netflix. So this is saying, well, for the people who are the diehards, the people who we know really, really need it, how can we you know, get more money from them? And um, I think this is a kind of a pretty simple way. I, I, I do think that we've sort of
0: reached this point now where there is a lot of streaming services and and people are now realizing actually you probably shouldn't or maybe can't afford all of them. Is that that could just be me, Amy? What do you think?
1: Well, no, it's absolutely right because if you look at it, it might seem to only be like ten, twelve, fourteen dollars a month, but if you have that across a couple of different platforms, then it, it's actually really expensive. And so, and what we know a lot of people do is sign up for say a free trial period, watch what they want, and then they might. You know, want something else in the future, so they might use a different email address. I mean, that's been something that's called out um, several times as well, particularly among Australian consumers. I mean, the best way they can retain customers is by keeping on providing great content, right? Must watch things. And then to do that, they need to invest in that and have the, the earnings. So, yeah, as I said earlier, I mean, when's the, the consolidation going to happen? I think from a consumer perspective, like there's there's almost too many out there and you think, oh gosh, I wish that show and that show were offered on the same platform and I would actually sign up because I know that I'd get a lot out of, out of that single platform. So um, I think it's kind of a signal that, um, like Cam said, the market hasn't, you know, contracted quite as much as as they thought it would. So next couple of years will be super interesting. All right. We
0: are out of time. Huge thank you to our guests this week. Amy
1: Bainbridge, thanks so much for
0: coming back on Download This Show. Thanks for having me. And Cam Wilson, thank you so much for coming back on Download This Show from Crikey. Thanks, Mark. And with that, I shall leave you. Thank you so much for listening to the program. If you enjoyed it, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to peruse most. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fidel, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.